From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that truly matters. Agriculture in America is older than the United States itself. Colonial America was an agricultural state, and long before the arrival of English settlers, indigenous peoples of North America farmed domesticated crops in the eastern woodlands in the American Southwest. Even today, in an industrialized world, Farming represents humanity's best efforts to coax planet Earth to feed all of us. But agriculture policy and the politics that drive it have always been, like so much of our world's history, unequal at best. Today, we're talking about agricultural policy, both in the U.S. and globally. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Garrett Grady Loveless. Garrett is a professor in the School of International Service. She researches and teaches on global environmental and agricultural policy and agrarian politics. Garrett, thanks for joining Big World. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kay. You research agricultural policy and agrarian policy through an environmental policy lens. And basically, as I interpret that, you look at how the planet can support feeding all of us with as little environmental harm as possible and you examine how food can be grown and distributed in ways that are fair to farmers. Is that is that fairly accurate? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and I would say also fair to farm workers and mm-hmm. kind of the many other people involved in, in, in agrarian landscapes. But yes, that's a great intro. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. You use political ecology and decolonial studies to help inform your work. So to get us started, tell me... Kind of briefly, what are political ecology and decolonial studies? How do you define those? So political ecology would be the realm of analyses that recognize that environmental issues are not apolitical. So the environmental crises of climate change, of water degradation, of biodiversity loss emerge from specific political economies of exploitation or pollution, and they have impacts that are more disproportionate to some communities than others. So there are inequities at the cause of environmental issues and in terms of the consequences. So it's the analysis of the social dimensions, the political dimensions, and the political economic dimensions that lead to and result from environmental disasters. And and the idea is that it's not just a biophysical issue, that to understand environmental problems and imbalances and crises, you have to have the social sciences involved, you have to have political sciences involved, you have to have critical studies involved to look at the power dynamics and the power asymmetries at work in what's driving and what's resulting from these environmental issues. And how do these two concepts play directly into your research? The decolonial studies is the realm of scholarship and analysis and advocacy that recognizes that colonialism and ongoing coloniality continue to be enormous in influences and, mm-hmm. and, and have enormous impacts on everything that we can think of in terms of material disparities or you know, broader, broader injustices. So you can't understand the current disparities, racial disparities, class disparities, unless you understand the history of the land dispossession or the labor theft that led to the current asymmetries and, and power dynamics um, that are so unbalanced. So you saw a gap, I guess, that needed to be filled in how people, just, you know, Joe people, understand farming and farmers and farm workers. 
Yes, yes. And so then with agriculture, I'm braiding in the agricultural dimension of this. I'm from a farming family Mm -hmm. um, and grew up, you know, assisting my family in farming. Um, And so I have a deep love for land-based life um, and and, and agriculture. However, there's another dimension of that in that my family, um, many generations back, were enslavers and colonial settlers. I'm from a white colonial settler family. So even thinking through the, the privileges of me having a connection to agriculture were born of, of a white supremacism historically and a coloniality and indigenous genocide. So kind of reckoning with that on top of learning from black indigenous feminist critical scholarship and black agrarian scholarship led me to realize that studying agriculture, you cannot study agriculture without studying colonialism, just like you can't study colonialism without studying agriculture. Um, agriculture was the arm of colonialism. It was the driver of enslavement. So I think they kind of, they're so interconnected. It's like inextricably connected. Those um, kind of horrendous horror stories of history and their ongoing legacies, which are still, you know, extremely um, egregious and the agricultural policy, agricultural economies that drove them. And that's a great pivot to my my next question, because you have detailed in your work a long history of colonialism and discrimination within U.S. agricultural policy writ large. So Briefly, how have unfair lending and land ownership policies disenfranchised Black farmers in the U.S. historically? And obviously there were centuries of enslavement, but then post that, how have, how have lending and land ownership policies been unfair and continue to disenfranchise Black farmers? There's layers of empire and plunder, trauma, dispossession, criminalization, and erasure. Um, and so the post-Civil War emancipation uh, and broader abolition of slavery in the U.S. led to a moment of reconstruction that actually had an opening for Black farmers. And um, and so Black farmers were able to own and, and take control of um, millions of acres of land that they had been working, you know, for centuries, obviously. Mm-hmm. However, backlash ensued and the land was restolen by white government and white landowners. So Black land ownership peaked in 1910 at nearly 20 million acres, nearly a million individual Black owners and their broader families. But clan violence, systemic theft, USDA lending inequities really ravaged that number. So by the time the late 90s happened, you have down to 1.5 million acres and just a few you know, tens of thousands of, of Black land owners. So the, and the specifics of how this worked, you know, I've, I've done research with, with the Land Loss Prevention and the Federation of Southern Cooperatives Land Assistance Fund and a lot of the Black-led organizations that have been fighting this for, you know, for generations. Mm-hmm. And they chronicled the specific ways that Black farmers would go to the USDA offices and request the same credit, the same loans, the same um, natural disaster crop insurance as their white counterparts and would be systematically denied. And I think there are some ways that historically, we as, as, as a people, what we're taught in school, the narratives that we absorb, farming is generally, there's this narrative that it's you know, white families in Iowa, that you know, that's who, it's children we, we learn are, are farmers. And the history of Black Americans, and most of the history that we're taught is the Great Migration, right. post-slavery. So you don't really learn about these families who were attempting to, to remain on the land and, and own their own land and farm for their own benefit and, and were denied. 
Exactly. And yes. And key points, Kay. And I think what's been really um, extraordinary is that there's been such a long history of Black agrarian resistance. Like the Haitian Revolution is agrarian men and women and children in the republics in Domingo, the colony rising up against the French colonialists and then the Spanish and the British and everyone who tried to recolonize them and to create their own republic, you know, the Haitian, the Haiti on into Fannie Lou Hamer, who was one of the leads of um, Black food sovereignty in the South in the 60s in the Civil Rights Movement. So there's always been Black agrarian indigenous-led alternatives to this colonial model of agriculture. Um, and I would say one of the key things that has been really re um, revelatory for me, but grand, for, frankly, from a white perspective, I, I have a lot of unlearning to do, shall we say, mm -hmm. is love of appropriation. The United States agriculture is a system of white appropriation of black agrarian excellence, always has been. So from the literal enslavement um, of the Carolina rice industry, which sought and captured and enslaved and capitalized upon West African expertise in rice cultivation, onto George Washington Carver's Jessup agricultural wagon. He was a black, um, brilliant agronomist mm -hmm. who had, he laid out the foundation for what became what we think of now as agricultural extension services, you know. And then the Black Panther Party's Free Breakfast for Children's program um, the whole USDA Child Nutrition Act really took that Black Panther program as their model. So there's this systemic appropriation of Black agrarian excellence that really is this through line of U.S. agriculture that I think finally there's a lot of scholarship coming out by Black female authors, largely Monica White, Leah Penniman, Ashante Reese, who are really bringing this to light. And it's, it's a process of really healing, which is going to lay the groundwork for reparations, frankly. I think that's a great word, unlearning, for, mm -hmm. for those of us who have absorbed other narratives. Garrett, two of President Biden's top priorities are climate change and inequality. And to a certain extent, these issues meet face-to-face uh, -face on Black-owned farms. The latest COVID-19 relief bill included $5 billion for farmers of color, which some experts say benefits Black farmers in a way that no legislation has since the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I, mean, I think it was something of a surprise to see this type of, of yes. farming support mm -hmm. in, in something outside the farm bill, uh, right. first of all, in, in a COVID bill. But briefly, what does the COVID-19 relief bill accomplish for Black farmers? It is a landmark victory. Um, and I will say also just a shout out to the many Black female leaders and organizers and community organizers who's worked for decades to get this on the books, you know, so... Um, Savvy Horn, Tracy McCurty, those at the Burrell Coalition, Acres of Ancestry. So this is many decades of struggle to chronicle and document the discrimination. Mm -hmm. And the other recent victories are the Justice for Black Farmers Act, um, as well as the Heirs' Property in the 2018 Farm Bill. All of these are kind of either on the books or making their way through the books, um, as well as the Commission to Study Reparations, which is very much related. So these are um, very exciting because they open the door to have the Black farming communities in the South and the broader U.S. reclaim land that they lost through, you know, forced moratoriums and forced foreclosures, and then recover from the from the enormous burden of debt that that the broader kind of lending fiascos have led them to. But frankly, it's just the crumbs, you know, frankly, it's mm -hmm. just the beginning, it's baby steps. There needs to be so much more uh, restitution, you know, for the horrors of the bondage, the land and labor theft, the white supremacist violence. I think the movement for black lives is so historic and it's also, it's kind of pivoting toward thinking about black land recovery. So the broader kind of black lives movement is now merging with these kind of longstanding, but more in the margins struggles to reclaim black land. Um, and I think it's very powerful. I think um, I would classify this COVID relief bill as um, a watershed movement, but but just the beginning. Yeah. And you've said some of this, I think, about what else 
you think needs to be done to right the historical mistreatment of black farmers and other non-white farmers by the government. You mentioned uh, reparations. Talk a little bit about land reclamation. And and if you can talk a little bit about other non-white farmers, because we haven't really focused on non-white farmers other than black farmers so far. Right. So, um, well, obviously, the uh, indigenous communities, tribal nations of the U.S. are mobilizing right now and have been obviously for centuries, but more recently with the Standing Rock movement was really a uniter of many tribal nations and communities across North America, Abia Yala Turtle Island, as it's called. Uh, recently, the Land Back movement is another um, iteration, a powerful iteration of a of a synthesizing of of land territorial sovereignty movements, you know, from the Southwest on into the upper Midwest. So there's really some exciting mobilizations happening around land sovereignty, Mm -hmm. but as the groundwork for food and seed sovereignty. So the seed sovereignty coalitions that are building and growing within the U S but also within Mexico and Canada, the first nations and tribal indigenous communities is very powerful and potential game changer for upending dominant intellectual property regimes, which is what, my book is about, as well as land tenure. So many things are happening on that front. Meanwhile, um, Latinx, uh, Latino, Latina growers are also navigating, moving from being farm workers. And of course, farm workers are just farmers without land uh, to landowners in the U.S. And so there's a whole movement for um, farmers, um, immigrant farmers and migrant farmers um, kind of taking root and, and reclaiming land and accessing land. So from the immigrant communities to the indigenous to the African diaspora, this has become a key vision, a key kind of mechanism for envisioning climate survival, food sovereignty, as well as kind of cultural recovery within the broader kind of framework of a colonial agriculture that had displaced them and appropriated their land and labor for so long. That is just the beginning. You know, Mm -hmm. farmers right now can't make a living farming. Even the white farmers who own their land make their farming income, make their income off farm. It's off farm income, not farming, you know, income from farming. So this question of how to support agrarian livelihoods, not just for one or two, but for a whole diverse BIPOC-led generation of people and cooperatives growing and raising food for a living, Um, This is the project that I've been working on called Disparity to Parity, trying to update supply management and price floors, which was the origin of the Farm Bill a century ago and was very helpful, but just for white male farmers in terms of making a livelihood. Could those policies and programs be updated for racial and gender diversity and justice, Mm -hmm. as well as for climate resilience is a really important kind of next step beyond just the land. And Garrett, as there's a move toward at least striving for equity, I'm, I'm curious We've moved to a place now where there's broad acceptance of land acknowledgments at the beginning of of meetings or conferences or or events. You'll often hear a land acknowledgment that this land, uh, you know, belonged to a group of indigenous people before it was taken and, and colonized. And as we know, the history of of North America involves colonization and slavery. So between the communities of indigenous people, and black farmers, is there agreement on how to reconcile the fact that the land was originally taken from indigenous people, farmed by enslaved black people, and then black farmers mm-hmm. received the, the the consequences of all this inequity, but there is still that kind of original yes original original sin in North America what is what is the thinking between those two communities about how to reconcile that 
firstly, as a white scholar um, and a, as a white kind of activist and, and or, you know, kind of as someone who's committed to these, to, to writing these injustices um, and, and through scholarship, I defer to those communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm learning from them as, as they're navigating this terrain. I will say there's um, Chris Newman of Silvaquana Farms in Maryland. He's Piscataway Black leader. He's been one of the leads on this, so he's one of the people whom I would I would I would defer to as well as Leah Penniman and Soulfire Farm. They are you know committed to Black uh, land reparations and sovereignty, but from a deeply intersectional perspective, working with Indigenous elders and Indigenous communities who are working for. You know, territorial sovereignty. So there are mobilizations that are happening, but it's a fraught terrain. I mean, you know, the 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 scale of the of the of the plunder on both levels is so intense. But I will say that there's just really brilliant elders and leaders and community members who are working on this. So I'm I'm learning. Garrett Grady Loveless, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest today, get to imaginate, as my little boy used to say, and change the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. So what are the top five barriers to achieving food justice that you would eliminate if you could? Labor exploitation. For those in the farm and food industry and beyond, our political economy has cheapened people's work, their care work, their unpaid care work, their low and underpaid work. Wage labor even earns pennies, so labor exploitation has to go. Militarized borders. We have to have massive immigration transformation to end the cruelty and hypocrisy of acute labor exploitation across food and farm systems. But demilitarizing borders also would entail demilitarizing globally. We're spending inordinate funds on weapons, weaponized borders, policing, bombs, missiles, which kill civilians, which leads to acute hunger and even famine. Next, I would say the prison industrial complex system. Decarceration will be very important for overcoming food injustices. And white supremacism is at the root cause of the plantation police gangs, which lead to the current um, industrial policing complex that we have. An end to corporate lobbying, to end transnational corporate dominance. So we definitely need antitrust. And finally, ending misogyny. Women and gender diverse people are often the nourishers and the providers of food for countless communities around the world. And when their rights are undermined, everyone suffers. That is a great list. We got to get to work on that one. Thank you. Garrett, we've we've focused a lot on North America so far, but we know that farming and food distribution systems are now global. It's why we can have strawberries in the dead of winter, which a lot of people would say isn't a, a great idea in the first place. But despite locavore movements, which encourage consumers to buy food that is grown or produced locally, we know that food in the U.S. comes from many other countries, and the U.S. sells food to other countries. Knowing that, what are the domestic and global impacts of U.S. farm policies that disenfranchise farmers of color? So basically, how do these policies go on to affect people globally other than the harm done to the farmers themselves? I actually think this is such an important question because U.S. agricultural policy impacts pretty much every village and community in the world. It's really extraordinary. Over the past few generations, as really post-World War I, I would say onward, according to kind of archival research on this, as the U.S. starts overproducing 
and the, and after World War One, there was a deliberate overproduction of grain so that the U.S. could feed the Europeans and others in World War One. And then the cycles of overproduction continued afterwards, and which led to the Dust Bowl and led to the Great Depression because the price fallout. So the economic and the ecological impacts of overproduction um, were in the 1920s, the 1930s, and led to the first farm bill to kind of curb overproduction because it was so detrimental environmentally and ecologically um, and, and economically. However, the cycles of overproduction were already underway, you know, and there's already kind of corporate influence and people were selling seeds and they were um, thinking about deploying that surplus internationally, either as food trade or food aid, but it was very geopolitically motivated, you know, so the food aid was a matter of making sure that countries that were throwing off the shackles of colonialism wouldn't kind of go communist. Mm. So there'd be a big American flag on the wheat, you know, there'd be a big American flag on the kind of ag development, the green revolution. So there was, fr- frankly, the U.S. rose to superpower status in the 20th century off of deploying surplus grain. Mm. It's really extraordinary, the power of that. And this narrative of feeding the world was part of the nation building exercise of the U.S. Um, but the irony is that it actually wasn't feeding the world. Whenever you dump a lot of surplus grain on a market, that means that the local farmers in that place can't compete with free. Right. So they go out of business. So that it creates this dependence countries that were long-standing self-sufficient in grains, even exporters, became dependent on imports of the U.S. You know, so this is a huge geopolitical shift. And what that does is that it undermines the agrarian livelihoods of countless farmers, you know, obviously the global majority, so largely farmers of color around the world, which led to rural outmigration and urbanization. And then, you know, in the case of Central America, all of these farmers in, in Mexico after NAFTA, who could not compete with the dumped corn, you know, from NAFTA, mm-hmm. left their communities, you know, their kind of ancient, exquisite, agrobiodiverse, agrarian, you know, masterpiece, you know, the kind of Southern Mexico masterpieces of agrarian excellence, and went to the city to try to make a living and then risked their lives crossing the border, trying to make a living, you know, to be farm workers in the U.S. So there's been enormous detrimental impact of the dumping of, um, of commodity crops internationally and undermining agrarian livelihoods and agrobiodiverse foodways around the world. And that is how U.S. policy can affect uh, folks in other countries. But within those countries themselves, is discrimination in agriculture, either racial or other forms of discrimination, is that a U.S. phenomenon or is it prevalent around the world within other countries? It is, it is certainly not unique to the U.S. Uh, we have a very acute version, but it is a global phenomenon. And, and actually, Kay, I've, I, I thought about this. I think about this all the time because there's a broader devaluation of, of farm work. You know, it, it's a systemic devaluation of what actually is a brilliant intellectual skill, you know, they call farming unskilled labor, which is like laughable, you know, the skill involved in farming, the artistry and the science Mm -hmm. of being able to grow food. And so that chronic devaluation is really a result of this model of development, this kind of post-World War II model of development, which says that underdeveloped means agrarian semi-subsistence and developed is when you just, you know, high mass consumption. And so there was this kind of political, economic, but also epistemic and cultural devaluation of farm labor intersects with racism. So that has become quite global, um, that, that, that chronic exploitation of farm workers um, through axes of racialization, and, but also kind of chronic devaluation of the, the labor and, and the artistry itself of it. Um, but then in terms of land dispossession, there are massive land thefts, land grabs, frankly, um, where huge swaths of land that has un, 
um, unsecure titling. So people have been living on that land for millennia. They're indigenous to it often, but they don't have a formal official title strong enough to withstand when the government of that country can sell off enormous swaths of land to a company or another country or a corporation. So that level of massive land dispossession, which really started has been long, long standing, but it got very acute about a decade ago, intersects with other longstanding racisms and classisms and, and, and discriminations, access of discrimination. And recently we've seen ongoing protests by farmers in India, and these have gained attention around the world. It even prompted the government in India to shut down the internet periodically. So what are the farmers in India protesting? What's happening to them? This is actually an enormous phenomenon, what's happening. And the COVID crisis right now is 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 very acute, um, but it's important not to forget the massive uprisings that really were going on, you know, since last spring, last summer, almost a year, and really got going after Modi passed the three farm bills. The BJP party passed these farm bills, and what those farm bills did last September is that they um, cut the minimum support price. And what that allows for is that farmers are able to grow, you know, maybe this amount of acreage, it's a quota, not nothing more than that, and get a price that they know they will get at the end of the harvest and build their entire kind of farming system around that security. Now, the pro- the process, what Modi was doing was cutting that and saying, well, we'll just let the buyers, the corporate buyers set the price. Well, corporate buyers are going to pit farmers against each other in a race to the bottom. And so all the Indian farmers know that this is game over for them, you know, in terms of like mm-hmm. agrarian livelihood. So they, you know, risk their lives. You know, there was a lot of police brutality. And people were actually, you know, living in Delhi for six months trying to kind of change these laws. So they start calling it an Indian farmer revolution. And really, as someone who studies international ag policy, I'm looking at that and thinking this is actually, you know, a challenge to the whole paradigm, the whole neoliberal ag policy paradigm that we've been in since the 90s is being challenged right now. And so it has a world historical, you know, potential. And more broadly, what are agrarian movements and how have farmers organized nationally and transnationally to challenge the consolidation of land and unjust financial and legal infrastructure in agriculture? Do, do you have farmers uh, working together across n- national borders. There is an extraordinary uh, transnational agrarian justice movement. It, uh, you know, there was pieces of this in various countries after colonialism, uh, during colonialism, obviously, but really it was the 1990s that this became international. It connected across borders. Um, and that was because the 1990s was the really the onset of the aggressive neoliberal model, the WTO, NAFTA, the free trade, which was pitting farmers against each other in a race to the bottom of prices. And the corporate buyers win in that. You know, they get to sell a lot of inputs. They get to buy at a cheap price. So um, all of these farmers um, gathered in the Via Campesina. La Via Campesina is the transnational organization. 200 million people are affiliated with La Via Campesina across Asia, across Africa, across the Americas. Um, on into Europe, this kind of extraordinary diversity of farmers who have gathered together to fight consolidation of land, um, to fight against corp control of ag markets, and they're really rallying for land, food, seed, data, water, sovereignty. That doesn't mean they're against trade. That just means they want trade on their own terms that doesn't undermine agrarian viability and lead to kind of ecocidal you know, cycles of overproduction. And Garrett, sometimes I end with a a big global question, but I think I'd like to end with a kind of a more micro, even personal question. For someone who loves land, who who respects land and what it can provide, as you do, how 
does such a person not become discouraged when you start to think about all of the the ways that farming has been uh, corporatized and and you know you have farmers who aren't allowed to save their own seed and uh, seed copywriting and commodity crops and you know cutting down the Amazon to to grow food for pigs so that we can continue to eat pigs how how do you not become discouraged at what seems like such a giant global machine that cannot be stopped honestly well i'm a person of faith so that's that's that and i'll put that out there but um moving beyond that inspiration from elders and from youth uh, particularly the black lives matter movement and it's it's the kind of next dimension of it which is a black agrarian resistance coupled with indigenous youth and elder-led resistance movements within this lands, but obviously it's international, are enormously inspiring because these are the communities who have been at the front line of these injustices and, and horrors of plunder and empire. So I follow the lead and follow the inspiration of the movements, the grassroots movements that have been on the front line. So the farm worker movements, um, the broader movements for abolition, um, these are all extraordinary movements. And really, it's an honor just to share space and time with them. So my work is very much community partnered and community led research. And that's because I think that makes for better research. But also, frankly, it's because if I weren't working so closely with people on the front line who are really dreaming of alternatives and enacting them so bravely, then yes, it would get very, um, it would get very depressing quick. Garrett Grady Loveless, thank you for joining Big World to discuss agricultural policy. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Oh, I'm so honored, Kay. Your questions were excellent. I'm really, I'm, I'm really honored. Thank you. Thank you. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you'll leave us a good rating or a review, it'll be like a dip in a swimming pool on a hot day. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time.